Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, guys. Popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. <laughs> because politics needed a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome to another back episode. Indeed. You know, it is like another like welcome back moment this one's really more specific to you and i'm just gonna lightly roast you for a second is oh this is another welcome back to another spring ankle for you (laughs) we ladies gents we are sitting i'm definitely in double digits so i'm in double digits with spring ankles so do you think it's like a world record like i just the people want to know I genuinely don't know. Like, I don't know if that was my only injury I ever got throughout soccer. So that was like a blessing because I almost everybody, all of my teammates at least got surgery once. I like never had to get a surgery, just like always sprained ankles and definitely was very blessed for that. And so maybe that's just is just my consequence that like because I had Mm. the ankles you know, and I didn't have to get a surgery. And now I just like struggle with like sprained ankles. I can maybe get like once one a year. It seems like well, I honestly probably get at also, least one a year. Have you ever broken it? No, because wow. it's like different. It's like not a bone. It's not your bone. Like, so it's your tendon or whatever. Ew. I go. I brought this up and I'm like, Ew. <laughs> this is like I, entirely. You guys, cool. I literally just sprained it a month ago. I was. Last month it was after the Jack Harlow concert. He clearly Feels he, right. just, he just had me stumbling, you know. And but I was in sneakers on pavement. I wasn't even like that drunk, and I was walking this dog. I was watching <laughs> the story for this time. Talk about a roast because <laughs> this is something that definitely needs to be unpacked. Because I was in a bar and also wearing mm. sneakers, so mm-hmm. like it's not even like a heel. Like I'm not wearing heels. All of a sudden, single ladies comes on. Oh, no. Oh, no. We all start dancing. I jump up out of my seat, come down, ankle sprain. <laughs> and if that's I not just, just, like, a complete, like, representation of my life, I, I don't know what is. Like, it's definitely, mm-hmm. like, that should be unpacked by, a, like, an actual expert because there's something there's something to be said about that. I look, I might be speechless, but what I can say is that honestly is a little bit of like a great preface 
because yeah. we do talk about Beyonce quite a bit on this episode. No, like, that's so total true. Accident. That's like, so true. Literal total accident. So <laughs> maybe like it just was all meant to be. Yeah, I mean, of all songs, single ladies. That's the one you jumped for. Yeah, it's weird. Like, it's not like a song that I'm like, I even like that much. I don't know why. It was just like I feel that. And I was with my roommate who has a boyfriend, and her boyfriend, and then his roommate, and so it was like two guys, two, and then like we were all dancing. But then like some for some reason, when I stood up and came back down onto the floor, my ankle decided to turn on its on its side and crack so yeah this time because I just did it a month ago she got pretty swollen and pretty ugly my first one like last month really wasn't that bad but the thing is like it hurts for like 20 minutes and then I'm fine like I can walk I can even probably run but like this it's just it's just really ugly so it's it's an interesting (laughs) girl's interesting burden that I deal with yeah but we made it we made it out, and apparently I was really impressive to the guys I was with. But like, I was just like walking around the rest of the night, you know. It didn't they stop were me. Like, wow, she just literally is unstoppable. She's unstoppable. She's tough. Like, wow. I mean, one could also say like maybe there was some wine involved, but at least it was quality wine, because I was drinking Wink. And Wink, if you guys haven't heard of it, is a wine club that crafts over 200 bottles of the internet's favorite wines and delivers them directly to my doorstep, which in turn just led me to my single ladies moment. But nonetheless. And honestly, like the wine is so freaking cute. Like, no, it doesn't like taste good. Like they really have like a variety of moment for like everything. But like it literally looks cute. Like my shelves have never looked better. Did the I branding pick out, is like so the wines cute. I wanted? Literally, if it has good branding on it, mm-hmm. look, sold me. Yeah. But speaking of of selling me, we're trying to sell you on this because we love it. And mm-hmm. we do have a deal for you guys. So check it out. We've got a link in our description. Go make your wine dreams come true. Also, like to give the deets, basically, and this is like just for a 21 plus club. Like, sorry guys, if you're not... You'll get there one day with like a few more wrinkles. It's going to be okay. But new members get four bottles for $29.95 and shipping. Any quality bottle of wine and quality being relative for us young spring chickens. But like is going to start at like typically $15, right? Like if you're going to your like spot around the corner and it like doesn't even have really what you want. Like that's the situation. So four bottles for $29.95 is like literally a steal steal a steal you're basically a thief there's no membership fees you can skip any month cancel any time and they'll replace any bottle you don't absolutely love but here's something else that's like really good about being a member is you get early access to new releases special discounts on cases discounts with brand partners just like really really great stuff and it really gives you just the opportunity to constantly like try wines and you don't even have to like leave your house so like it has been so That's freaking cold part. here. <laughs> oh, literally the best. So mm-hmm. to, to recap, for our winos, our aspiring winos, go to the link in our bio, go to the link in our description here, go get yourself four bottles for $29.95 via Wink. You won't regret it. You're going to have a great time, as my mother would say. So yeah, don't strain your ankles and let us know how you like them. But we also have an amazing episode 
for everybody today. Um, a super exciting one. And mm-hmm. again, I will I will just pass the mic to Samantha because this is her her favorite part, and I don't want to steal steal her thunder. Oh, you're too good to me. <laughs> okay. Well, this week's guest is Jamira Burley, and when I tell you guys that, like, I literally have been fangirling over her for so long. When we reached out, we were like, okay, can she please come on the show? I literally was like, this is such a long shot. Like you, you always gotta shoot your shot. And we actually, we talk about that on the episode of Two Degrees Hotter podcast that we were on. Shoot your shot. You're the living, breathing example of shoot your shot. (laughs) Especially Maddie, oh my God. (laughs) You just never know. And when she said yes, I literally was like out to dinner with my friends and I squealed so hard. I was like, and the conversation is also school worthy because it is super fun. She is the director of social impact for Adidas. She is an equity advisor for Sephora and so many other roles. Her expertise is in social impact. It's in corporate responsibility. It's in advocacy. It's in activism. And we talk about it all, but especially talk about corporate responsibility in sort of the the changing times that we're in, where we think it'll go, where it's been, what's been the catalyst for brands getting on board with social change and being sort of a part of impact. Regardless, I don't want to ruin the whole conversation, you know, and that's taking all the details here. So without further ado, here's Jamira. Let's just like get it started. We are super excited to have you on the show. We have so much to chat about. (laughs) When I was doing this overview and I was thinking about like, what topic are we going to cover? I literally was like, I don't know which road to pick. Like there were just Mm. so many options. So for everyone listening, this is like road one. We'll be making a a return moment for a lot of other topics. But before we even get into what we're going to be talking about today, we of course want to paint the picture for everyone. You have been involved in activism and politics for a long time since high school. Can you give us an idea of sort of how that started? What did that look like? I love a good time travel back to high school. So, you know, give (laughs) give us what you know. (laughs) Well, it's so funny that you asked about high school because I just started watching Euphobia. Euphobia? See, clearly I'm not a, an OG and I'm just like, my high school is not like that. But yeah, it was, <laughs> it was so long ago. I feel so old sometimes, but high school was where I started my activism. It was where I think it was the catalyst for so many other issues that were happening, both in my life, but also in my community. And I started to engage in issues that were not sexy at the time, right? I don't think activism was sexy back in 2005. Now, I think a lot of people see that as a pathway for them to be engaged. Like we weren't getting brand deals in 2005, right? to say say the least. But yeah, yeah. So I started in 2005 is kind of the catalyst for me. Um, It was the year that my 20-year-old brother, Andre, was shot and killed. It was also the year that my father was convicted of murder in Virginia. Two separate incidents, but happened in the span of months of each other. And so I, at 15 years old, was at the, the weird intersection of knowing both a perpetrator and a victim. And it made me extremely angry as a young person, right? I felt very disillusioned about society. I mean, I had already thought that the world was just trash, but I was very disillusioned about society and I, I felt hopeless and I didn't feel like I could do anything. And it was through the support of both my principal as well as my school counselor, which many schools don't have school counselors nowadays, which is really sad, but who kind of encouraged me. I remember at one point during a conversation where my principal was like, well, you know, you can choose to be a victim or you can do something about it. And I think it was the first time that someone actually gave me, made me feel like I had 
the ability as a young person to create something or to do something that can transform the way my community operated. And so we started the Panther Peace Corps, which was a violence interrupters um, program where we taught high school students how to be violence interrupters, to be peer mediators, to be advocates for other students. And through that process, we reduced the fighting and crime at Overbrook High School by nearly 50% during my time. And because of that program, it was implemented across the city of Philadelphia in the top 10 pursuing dangerous high schools. And it was where I got my taste for power, right? But it was also mm. where I started kind of pulling back the onion layer of like, you know, violence and mass incarceration are the root, are the public faces of much systematic, um, much deeper systematic problems wrong with society. And I started to learn more about those issues. And through learning about those issues, I, I realized that, you know, there was a lot of work that I as a young person can do. And, and one of those things was to use my lived experience as a way to kind of give people a direct lens onto how policy and practices impact my life. Yeah. Wow. It's an incredible story. And like that program, can you kind of also explain how you even started that and how it worked? And like, also we have, again, like so many young listeners who do want to make change in their communities. And I think the idea of taking that leap can be scary or intimidating, or you just don't know where to start. Can you kind of like highlight how you really went about that? Yeah. I, so I'm never for one for, you know, recreating the will or creating something for the sake of creating something. And this probably is an indicator of me growing up in a very large family. And the, the, the idea for the Panther Peace Corps came about through trying to identify where are the ways in which other young people get influenced. And in that time, that was before Instagram, before Facebook. And so you, you learned your style, your swag, you learn um, who you were oftentimes by other students within your class, within your school. And they really set the tone for how you move throughout your high school experience. And so we started recruiting folks from a wide range of backgrounds at my high school. So we had basketball players, we had people who were part of the drum line, the chess team, class presidents. And we had a cohort of about 25 students where we brought in a local community organization that actually is a part of the ceasefire initiative, which is a nationwide initiative that trains formerly incarcerated folks on how to be violence interrupters in the community. And so they helped to kind of train our students on their methodology on how to have those conversations with each other. But then we also added a second layer in recognizing that students need advocates. A lot of times policies are um, inherently harsher on students of color. And so we wanted to train students on how to effectively advocate on behalf of each other. Because yes, somebody might've gotten into a fight or yes, somebody might've cussed the school teacher out, but that doesn't mean we throw the book at them. Right. And it doesn't mean that we consider them as throwaways, right? They still mm -hmm. are deserving of a, a process, a legitimate process, and they're still are deserving of redemption. And so how do we yeah. create a system that, you know, sees students as not the worst thing that they've ever done, but that they need help. Because yeah. if my principal had saw my actions shortly after my brother was murdered as, you know, as disruptive, or as um, a problem child, I would have been on an entirely different path. And so how do we, you know, recognize that each and every one of us walks into spaces and places with baggage and we should start asking more questions versus just making assumptions about why people are the way they are. Totally. totally. That reminds me of like last, so last night's episode, I'm not going to spoil anything of Euphoria. <laughs> it was, but Zendaya posted like something about it on Instagram today. And I don't even think the post has any spoilers in it either, but it does talk about just that like message of redemption and how like especially young kids like you can't just throw them away when they do make these mistakes because we all do and it's like she she had this really amazing post about like that same message of redemption how important it is that we give people more grace you know yeah say so i always thought it was weird that we we punish kids about things that they have no idea are wrong right mm -hmm. we're making assumptions that they understand laws and policies that they've never been told about and i'm just like 
nowhere else in the world is that like a thing where you don't teach people about the kind of the guardrails of society and without expecting them not to understand where they come from. Totally. Mm-hmm. And I think to like add to that too, you're like putting like the assumption on parents to know them as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like layered, like, yeah, yeah. especially kids, they really don't know, but like not every parent, most parents don't know like those guardrails either. So I feel like it just makes it even worse because where are they going to learn this? It's like, you don't learn it until you're already in trouble with it. And I think that is like a mm-hmm. whole discussion as to like what needs to change there. But in terms of what was done in terms of this like violence interruption, what does that look like? Like, because I'm not sure I'm super familiar with what an intervention program of that nature looks like. So it can look at many different ways, but the most commonly known way of a violence interrupter is you see something in the course of happening, either a fight is currently happening or in the process of happening. And you are physically putting your bodies in between these opponents, really. And you are using different tactics, such as language, such as accountability. So saying, you know, is there other ways that we can solve this problem? Asking folks what actually happened to ensure that there's a a clear understanding of the the facts, right? Because we know in high school, by the time something came to us, it had changed stories 5,000 times. You might actually be arguing with someone or have a conflict with someone that is not rooted in fact. And so we tried to help ensure that we had a clear understanding of the facts, talking with folks around how they actually felt based on the other person's actions. Is there another way that we can actually solve this problem? And most of the time, those tactics actually work because it enabled for those students to still be held accountable. Um, So we had school court, We had peer mediation sessions with both students and parents. So it it worked in a number of different ways. We also, in advance, found out that conflicts were brewing, right? And so we heard that there might be a fight after school between two and these two individuals. And so we worked a lot with the school office to not to not snitch on students, but to find opportunities where we can bring both parties together to have a conversation before things escalated too far. But I think the reason why it was so successful is because we had such a wide diversity of students who were a part of the the Panther Peace Corps. And I think people saw them as folks that they wanted to be or be like. And so it added an extra layer of influence that we probably wouldn't have found if we just picked like the typical goody two-shoes type students. Mm. Yeah, they they never really were the goody two-shoes type. Let me tell you. Like, there's this one kid that Maddie and I talk about all the time. Obviously, I never named them that I went to high school with. That was just, like, the most obnoxious. Mm-hmm. And now, like, is an elected office. And I'm always like, ugh. Like, he means so well. But you're like, anything he does is just automatically annoying. He's like a de Blasio. Like, anything he does is just freaking annoying, like, even if he means well. So it's, yeah, it's all, like, it's often the context is the creator. So coming from, like, sort of the right mouths, like, makes a big difference. So I think that's really cool that that's sort of, like, how it worked here. But to fast forward to now, like, not to, like, leave high school as much as I'm, like, loving this moment. <laughs> we could totally leave high school. <laughs> We're on our journey. We got in the it's car. Driving, right? Yeah, here's, oh, my God, guys, I need to find me, like, a little cap. That would have been a cute moment. But alas, <laughs> you're the co-founder of the I Am Here To organization. Can you give us the speed on this? Like, what's the, what's the deal? Yeah. So first of all, the I Am Here To initiative was created by myself and my really good friend, Ariella Schuster, who is from El Salvador. And we met back in 2000 and it was shortly after the 2016 election. So I want to say like the summer of 2017. And we share a very weird connection. So her brother was kidnapped during the El Salvador Civil War and was held for ransom for almost a year. And that is how she became involved in violence prevention, specifically creating pathways to jobs for former gang members. 
And around the same time in Philadelphia, my brother Andre was shot and killed. And so we met at the Vital Voices Global Leadership Awards. She received the award in 2017. And then a year later, I received the award in 2018. And we both wanted to meet each other. And we finally got connected a year later. And we just clicked. Um, and both of us were trying to figure out how do we convey a message to people who are frustrated with the way the world is about how they can use their personal pain, their lived experience as a way to inform them about creating change in their local communities. And so we wanted to go through the process of figuring out what were the, all the steps that we took? What were the things that we needed to learn? What were the things that we needed to explore about our own personal identity around our own healing? And how could we put that into inaccessible tools for other young activists to be able to do? Because we know where everyone around the world, including here in the US, are experiencing their own form of oppression, their own form of trauma. You know, we so oftentimes folks like to play the oppression Olympics. I don't. I think everyone's trauma is real trauma. And our goal isn't to compare, but is to heal. Right. And so we wanted to create programs, tactics, and tools that enable for those young people to be able to one heal engage, learn the school, the tools and tricks, but then also be able to go back into their communities to hit the ground running and activate. And so I Am Hero was born through that process. And so, you know, me and Ariella takes very different tactics. She's like a holistic healer. She's like learning about a, a wide range of forms of like indigenous practices around healing and reconciliation. Wow. And I'm very much, you know, policy practices, data, return on our um, return on and uh, return on investment, which we also have a return on love, one of our methodologies. And so it's just trying to use different tactics from our lived experiences to be able yeah. to, you know, work with young people around a realistic ideology around how we move through the world, both me as a social justice activist and her as a social entrepreneur using similar tactics. Yeah, I love that. And just like the comprehensive approach from like, you got all of it in there. I love that. Yeah. Well, kind of like moving down your incredible resume. Let's talk about two. It's your... all lies. <laughs> no, it's incredible. And you are the director of social impact at Adidas. So I, I want to yeah. hear all about this. Like, tell us what that job is like and what it really entails. Yeah. And so this is funny because I, back in high school, returned to high school, <laughs> one of the programs that I was a part of was the National Black MBA Association LLT program. And it's basically where they took high school students and taught them the methodology of like the business world. And so we did Harvard case competitions. We, we went to conferences. And through that process, I wanted to, I've always been interested in the exploration around how corporations play a role in societal shifts, either culture or policy. Because we know that in the background, right, through their lobbyists, they're pushing for policy all the time. But what does it look like when they do it in the best interest of the community? Mm -hmm. And so throughout my career, I've always just been interested through how companies show up on behalf of communities, which is how I've like consulted in the past with companies around how they do directly, um, how they engage directly impact the communities. And so when this opportunity came about whew, a year ago, because um, I've only been with Adidas for about six months now. When this opportunity came about a year ago, it was the chance, I think I was going through a point during COVID because we're still in a global pandemic where I was dissatisfied with not necessarily my job, but because I felt like I was working in a space that, like I was working on issues around global education and global development, uh, which is still highly important. But I felt like I wanted to be on the other side of where companies before it came to us in the global development space, helping them to actually structure what their fund, their giving policies and practices look, look like. And so I was in the conversation with a number of companies, some similar to the one that I'm at, um, 
but Adidas offered the best opportunity as the director for North America. And it's a chance for me to, to blend both things that I'm extremely interested in, which is physical health, sports and activities. I was a huge sports person in high school. I swimmed, I played track, I played basketball, while also thinking around how we can use those tactics of physical activity, sports and holistic healing as a methodology for engaging Black and Latinx communities. And so we're working with nonprofits around different cultural moments to infuse social impact because at Adidas, we believe that through sports, we have the power to change lives. And so how do we take into consideration what we know as a brand to be able to help pave ways for communities to live better lives and hopefully be able to engage in sports in a way that improves the conditions of their communities? Wow, that's awesome. Love that. I was going to say, um, Maddie, as you as like a former athlete, I feel like this is like right up your alley. <laughs> Yeah, I love to see it. What did you play? What, what was your sport? I played soccer in college. We were at my Nike my first year, but we transitioned to Adidas. So, <laughs> yeah, and you know, soccer is one of the sports that I am not good at all. I have no hand. I my coordination is so off. It's so off. So I understand the skill. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was never good at basketball, and when I tried to play in middle school, I think I had to points total the entire season so yeah but don't ever tell anyone that ever (laughs) (laughs) i'm just telling like a couple thousand people on my podcast it's fine oh we love when the trade secrets come out it's fine it's wow we're just we're just you know it's okay anyways i guess we can move i think sammy is judging you at this point I think everyone, I think everyone is judging me and that's okay. You know, it just, it's important to be vulnerable sometimes. Exactly. (laughs) All I can say is I officially feel great at basketball. So thank you for that. (laughs) Happy Monday to me. (laughs) I was really good at defense. Like I would like, I had, I stole the ball so much. I was really good at defense. And then I would go up like and break away to the layup. Okay, so you played a good role. Couldn't make a layup, but I would like always steal the ball and like be like, have to go down like, and I couldn't do it. But it's okay. I just, you know, had to dabble in a few sports in middle school, see if I was on the right path. And I, I sure was with soccer. So you should, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. It made sense. <laughs> it worked. It's, let's move on past just my really depressing basketball history and get into our I have a stupid question segment because mm-hmm. we want to just ask a few questions, kind of get the nitty gritty on really like social impact first. If you can kind of really explain what that even means and especially in the context of like employment, what you guys do and how that can be incorporated into like different big brands and stuff like Adidas. Yeah. So the way that I look at social impact is through the lens of how companies work in collaboration with governments, nonprofits, and community leaders to create holistic solutions for change. And so that could be anything from providing direct assistance. So dollars to communities, to nonprofits that are doing the work. It could also mean, which is rarely done, which is one of the areas that I'm specifically interested in, it's how brands and organizations use their internal knowledge around a host of different expertise. So right, whether that's technology, whether that is marketing, whether that is branding, how do we provide the skills that we as a brand are already uniquely good at to provide those skills to community leaders to be able to have long-term implications for their communities that will, will supersede any donation we can make, right? We can write a million dollars to an organization, but if we actually teach them skills, if we yeah. actually teach them ways in which that they can properly market themselves and brand themselves or create other streams of income that I think has a much longer implication. And so the way in which we used to see social impact, it was through charitable giving. It was just through companies and 
foundations really because companies used to have their foundational arm. And so they used to do most of their charitable giving just strictly through the foundation. But now what you're seeing is that companies are being pressured both by millennials and Gen Zs to care more about the communities that they Mm -hmm. sell to and that they operate in. Because I think for so long, companies didn't see their employees as also members of the community um, or that they're the folks that they were selling to as members of the community. And so I think Gen Z and millennials, uh, 80 to 90% believe that companies' success should be measured more by their, their bottom line. And the data also says that when companies care more, show up more, their bottom line increase. We saw that with Nike in regards to the burning of the shoes, right? When they supported Colin Kaepernick. And so I think what we're now seeing that transition is that every brand, every organization is now figuring out how does marketing takes into consideration social impact? How does PR take into consideration? How does product, how does development, how does the board all consider how to weave in social impact And it needs to be through the corporate voice, right? So Mm -hmm. the corporation should have a voice in regards to what are the issues they care about. So if it's a company, some companies may say our three areas that we care about is the environment, people, and environment, people, and girls' education, right? And so that's their three topics. And so they can then weave in their charitable given based on their corporate voice. And it doesn't say that, you know, companies have to care about every single issue, but they should care about how real world issues are impacting people's everyday lives, which is why we saw such an uproar around how companies showed up for, you know, after the, the shooting death of George Floyd. And I think the continuation of that is going gonna, is gonna to continue, especially when you look at things like Spotify right now, the pressure that they're receiving from the public mm-hmm. backlash. It's forcing companies to no longer say profit is more important than the social harm that your product, your platform, or your campaign is actually doing the communities that you work in. Totally. And that, I'm not to jump ahead, but to absolutely jump ahead, I have a question. And that is like, how do companies figure out like what issues are going to be important to them? Or maybe it's, you know, it's more specific to their consumer. Like this is the issue that we need to rally around or have messaging around because there are like when we, you know, do this podcast, like there are an endless amount of issues that we could talk about. We will have Mm -hmm. this podcast till we're like literally 125 years old and like are officially the oldest people in the world because there are just so many issues to cover from so many angles. And I am absolutely here for it. But like, you know what I mean? Like what, what is it like if you're sitting at that table and you're like, okay guys, like we're coming together. We need to figure out what issues we're rallying behind. Like how does that conversation happen? What does it look like? So it has to be authentic. So one of the companies that I work with externally from Adidas is I work with Sephora as an equity advisor. And you know, it, it, Sephora could have, like in most companies, could have easily just came on and said, you know, we care about men, which we care about men hygiene, which just doesn't make sense because that's not their core audience, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, Sephora said, we want to take a look at how communities of color, minorities, and, and different identifying folks are treated in the retail industry. We want to examine how our stores, how our how our employees are interacting with consumers. That is an authentic lens, right? And they did that because they listened to the community of folks that they had assembled through this equity advisor council. They listened to their employees, but they also looked at the data and they saw where the the opportunity gaps arise. So that's one way to do it, right? Another way to do it is based on the, the cultural moment of the time, right? So what we know right now is that there is a huge division within our society around race, around culture, around democracy, right? Whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And I think companies can get engaged and figure out their corporate voice based on their proximity to those institutions. 
So if a company like many of our, whether we're talking about um, our oil companies, whether we're talking about our gas companies, whether we're talking about like our financial industry companies, they have proximity to policymakers. And depending on what policymakers they have proximity to, they can actually provide influence over different policies. So I used to, I work with the, with the Responsible Business Coalition for Justice, RBIJ, and they work specifically with around criminal justice reform. And so we've worked with brands, Ben and Jerry's, We've worked with brands like Virgin Mobile because the CEOs at the top have deemed that this is an important topic. So Mm -hmm. that's also another way is that the leaders of these companies have said these issues are important to me. And then second is, and then the third and final, I think is proximity. And you alluded to this earlier, like where your employees are based, where your consumers are based and where you as a physical store are oftentimes based could also be an influence on what issues you care about. So if you are in a community that is, are you in a state, for instance, that just decided to roll back abortion rights for women and half your employees are women, this right. might be an opportunity to speak totally. up because you are in proximity to the policymakers that just made those stands. And we saw that with, I forgot, was it, it was an internet company. What was it? Like a website company that basically told the government, that the government of Texas that they have within 48 hours to move their website regarding um, oh. abortion reporting before they deleted the site. So that's oh, another wow. way company, yeah. I forgot what it was. Yeah, so there's ways like in which companies- Wix, Squarespace, It's not like an GoDaddy. old one. No, think of like GoDaddy. GoDaddy. GoDaddy, yeah. yeah. GoDaddy pulled their site because they their employees are women. Mm-hmm. They're where they're located. There's heavily women population and also the public put the pressure on those companies. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you can withstand the public pressure, which most companies can't, then by, by all means continue to be trash. But I think <laughs> what we're, we're seeing the trends is yeah. that consumers, employees want to work and buy things from companies that actually care. Totally. And like to kind of dive deeper into that, I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, all of everything that happened in 2020 and that really being a big catalyst, I think, for a lot of companies to really start to, you know, do better. But mm-hmm you know, do you think that that was the year when it started to happen or is that, or was this kind of like move for corporations to start, you know, caring about social impact? Do you think that's like been kind of a long time coming? I think it's been a long time coming, especially in the era of social media, because one, I think Twitter, Instagram, Facebook has all enabled for us to have much more close proximity to the leaders of these spaces and places. And also given us a microphone to call out these companies when we want to. So we as individuals could actually call out a company and would potentially could go viral, right? And bring other voices into the fray that has never been able to happen before. Before you had to write a letter or you had to work with a large scale organization that can can rally enough support and funding to organize a boycott. You can always, you can, you as an individual, you as a small organization can actually organize a boycott now more than you could ever do before. Mm -hmm. So I do think it was a long time coming, but I think it was accelerated by the accessibility of social media. And through that, our knowledge of what's happening in borders and communities outside of our own, right? So now we know that the companies that we support here might be doing harm somewhere else. So we can also hold them accountable for that too. Yeah, I think like social media being a platform like to giving more people a microphone is like you said, so huge because beforehand, you know, say like it was a news story, like a lot of these corporations Mm -hmm. are actually so powerful that they can just like kill a news story. And nowadays, you know, we we as the people have the like potential to make something go viral and expose, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, any any kind of wrongdoing from some of these companies. So I think that is such an interesting angle to it. 
And I think TikTok is just going to blow it out of the water. There's oh, totally. TikToks I've seen that are just like chef's kiss of how TikTok they've just taken really down some people. Yeah. <laughs> so TikTok is just really incredible for just looking at really like the like grassroots power, honestly. Like mm-hmm. it really like anybody can go viral and anybody can like really have a voice that can reach so many people and you just never know what's going to catch fire. And I think that's super cool. Like it's just a total like people powered platform, which I love, but agreed totally which is like so wild because I literally was like so anti-tiktok forever and then like I got addicted and now here we are and I like love a lot of what it does we could talk about the algorithm being a little mm, but trash yeah (laughs) yeah I mean like the amount of like weird also like parts of tiktok I've ended up on as a result of that I can't even begin. I can't even begin. But I'm in like, you know, government conspiracy side of TikTok, you know, alien side of TikTok. I'm in just so many weird spaces on TikTok. But I agree. It is the algorithm could use some help. And the vast majority of content on there could use some help. But there are some really good gems. Agreed. Mm-hmm. And some really weird, like, life facts and hacks that I have learned. Like, I, I like kind of love, love my algorithm. Can't lie. But I also get it. Like, if you spend a little bit too long on like one video like your algorithm does become like changed like, for a while and you have to like it. get it back to like what it was like every it's just like back to euphoria is this a euphoria podcast maybe, maybe. um <laughs> every like sunday the euphoria tiktok starts popping off with all the theories and like breakdowns of the episode and like when i go on tiktok right after the episode and i'm not getting euphoria videos i'm like what's going on where are my euphoria videos i've like type it in and then once you watch one and it'll start coming, it's just, it's funny how it works, but. It's the damn spiral. But speaking of sort of like these platforms and making people think in sort of other dimensions or from perspectives that like maybe they hadn't before, like, do you think this has been part of like the market push for consumers pushing companies to do better? Or like generally speaking, even like what we were talking about before of like consumers seem to care a little bit more about like what these companies are doing and, you know, where their money is going, like. Where did that trend sort of start? Is there either a timeline or a map, a journey it took? Yeah, I think it was people, I think it, uh, to be honest, I actually think a lot of it started after the 2016 election where Mm -hmm. people felt mass media was not providing an accurate description of what was happening around the country, if not around the world, especially here from the US context. Like if you ever travel abroad and watch BBC or just any other news outlet that has a global lens, you're just like, yo, America is not the center of the world. And America is actually doing some shitty things everywhere. And so I think people were hungering for an access to knowledge from people who look like them, right? Who share their own view of the world, who was willing to kind of go down this rabbit hole with them to explore the things that they don't understand because there has never been a place in which we were taught about politics and about policy and how we can be actively informed beyond just like showing up to the voting booth every two or four years. And so I think people are hunger are hungry for a space to one to find a community of people who share their values, which can be good and both dangerous. We've seen that happen, right? But also I think to get access to a wider range of information that was not just through the centering of the American context for every single issue. Because that we're seeing that now with Whippy Goldberg, right? Around her conversation on The View. It's like, Whippy was wrong, but it was wrong through the American, it wasn't wrong through the American context of how we see race. And so I think there's rarely any access to nuances and people are looking for the nuances, which mm-hmm. helps us to have deeper conversations. Right, yeah. Well, also kind of just bringing this to like, 
talk about politics with all of this as well. Obviously, we talk about this all the time, how like corporations Mm -hmm. run our government, but it's also interesting (laughs) from the like optics side of it. How does it work? Like do corporations follow like the politics or do politics follow the corporations or like what do you see from like this kind of more optics, like PR social impact standpoint? Yeah, it's definitely the latter. There was a great report. I want to say it was put out by the, I'm going to find it and send it to you, but it was put out by one of the the think tanks in DC that highlighted that the vast majority of Americans are actually in the middle in regards to a number of issues, right? The vast majority of Americans believe in universal healthcare. The vast majority of Americans want safer communities. The vast majority of Americans believe in like eliminating student debt. But when you compare that to what policymakers are actually doing, Mm -hmm. it's the exact opposite. So voters have very little influence on the actual policies. But then when you compare that to corporate influence, they're matching almost like identical in regards Mm. to what corporations want versus what policymakers are actually moving. So that's why many people are frustrated with the idea of voting is because we've seen time and time again where corporate interest is put is put before the interests of the public, which is why I think the tactics have gone, have shifted to where people are putting pressure on the corporations, corporations to do better because we understand that they have way more influence on policymakers than the average voter. That's so interesting. Which is why it's so screwed up. Yeah, <laughs> so that's wild. Up. That's really wild that it's like it was taking that shift. Thing when you see the the map of like the scale of balance of power, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. And also like makes you sort of like wonder like how we can make change. Like there's always sort of that comment of like vote with your dollar. And sometimes like in doing that, you kind of have to figure out like what's that litmus test, right? Like what corporation is sort of aligning with my values or at least enough optically? Like, is there anything you recommend for like your listeners to do when they're like thinking about like essentially voting with their dollar, like going to the store and being like, should I be like, I know there's certain brands where I'm like, okay, well, like, sorry, yeah. I'm not going to Chick-fil-A. Like, I also don't like fried food. So that one's kind of easy for me. But regardless, I know it's very weird. <laughs> Good for but... you. I will. <laughs> Chick-fil-A sauce. Honestly, I could like, it's the Chick-fil-A <sighs> sauce for me. Like I would put it that is, on everything. So anyway, sorry. But now there are TikToks <laughs> that teaches you how to make the Chick-fil-A sauce, but that's another conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh... Got it. We love TikTok. I mean, just <laughs> saving the world. <laughs> so I, I think to your question, Sammy, it's really hard, right? Because when you pull back enough layers, all companies are doing some something extremely shitty, like all yeah. companies, yeah. whether you're talking about your cell phone company, whether you're talking about the company you use for your workout classes, whether you're talking about the company that makes your bread, all of them are doing something that inherently, because when you think about capitalism, capitalism right. looks at, always puts money and profit mm-hmm. over people and planet. Yeah. And so that is at the root of the cause. Right. And again, I'm not saying that people should make money, people should make profit. But if we are making profit at such a high rate to where the planet is literally dying, right? the planet is dying. Like at some point, that money that you're making will mean nothing if the planet is dying. And so I think for me, one of the things that I tried to keep in mind about how when I boycott and when I engage in like not purchasing or engaging in products or brands is really thinking about, you know, if there is an alternative, why not just take the alternative, right? So some there's some there's some places where they're not alternatives. So that's based on where you live. That's based on accessibility. That is based on you know cost. And so it's easy for us to say to to folks, you know, don't buy fast fashion. 
But if that's all they can afford, right, and they don't have access to like secondhand shops, is like that is the only mechanism. So I think when you have an opportunity to take an alternative, do so. If you yeah. if you if you truly believe that this brand is doing something to harm people who look like you or don't look like you, because as far as I'm concerned, I don't have to be directly impacted to to call an organization mm-hmm. out. And so the balance for me is like if you have an alternative. So for me, Chick Fil A. The alternative is to either make your own sauce or, you know, go somewhere else that also has really good fried chicken sandwich, which we're starting to get some good ones. There's, there's options for sure, but yeah, there's some yeah. options. As long as the Chick-fil-A sauce is there, like we're, we're good. I'll eat, I'll eat any ch- yeah. fried chicken sandwich. <laughs> I support that. Okay. How do you also put the pressure then on some of these corporations who really haven't even started to consider this somewhat new world of like social impact and giving a shit, like some of them aren't even close to, you know, hitting the mark yeah. on that. How, how do we kind of push that change? I mean, similar to the, you know, the last point we just talked about, like I think of like Amazon, a lot of times these systemic issues are kind of put on the individual when there's clearly like these bigger power players that are like to blame. But at the same time, it's like, how do you, how do you push this change for some of the, you know, big corporations and stuff that aren't, aren't getting there or aren't even attempting? Yeah, I think one of the ways we do that is we get companies to talk more about what they're doing, get companies to put pressure on other companies. I think a lot of companies, you know, traditionally ones that are not traditional American companies, like they're not used to bragging about the things that they do to help the community because it's a cultural thing, right? And then there's some American companies that are, that's all they do is brag about what they've done, even though it's very surface level impact. And so I've always been under the, you know, belief that if we don't talk about it, it if it's not documented, it doesn't, it matters, but it, it could matter so much more. So like people were always shocked when they found out that Beyonce gave money to Black Lives Matter activists. And I was like, damn, I wish you would have said something in the moment because imagine how many other celebrities would have stepped up to the plate and did the same thing, right? Yeah. And so I think one of the ways is how do we get companies to talk about more about why they, they're giving back, why they're doing why they're doing no longer doing business as usual. Two, I think working with employees within those brands to organize. We're seeing that a lot with companies like Amazon, where workers are unionizing, are trying to in many ways, and that they are trying to, you know, wave the the red flag about some of the human rights concerns for employees at some of those factories. And so I think it's one pressure from other companies. You know, the, the worst thing a company wants to do is seem bad in comparison to their competition. And then two, organize employees within that brand. And then three finding ways in which you can engage a company around an issue that makes the most sense for them, right? So not every company knows how to do social impact well, especially if it's a new startup, they may not have a team to build it out. And so what are the, th- what are the organizations that are doing that work, working in conjunction with companies to you know, help them build that out for themselves, help them understand their brand voice, and then helping them engage with authentic voices from the community that can provide them a clear perspective of the path forward. And so it's a learning process. I don't expect you know, I, I probably would have appreciated so many more companies more in 2020 if they just said, you know, we're not an expert in race, we're learning, and this is a journey for us. This is what we believe in, and we're, we're planning to keep you updated along the path as we continue to get engaged and represent the communities that are impacted by these issues. Versus so many came out and was like, oh, we're going to give this amount of money. Well, what does that really mean? What impact is that really going to have? And like, what are the return on investment? And years later, we're still trying to figure out where the vast majority of that money went. Yeah. It's like a Band-Aid approach versus like a long-term game situation. And like, I do think that- Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. A thousand percent. Totally. A thousand percent. Is the 
political route as far as like holding some corporations accountable or getting corporations to change some of their tactics and ways. Is there a political route to do that? What do you think from from a political standpoint? Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing you. We're seeing companies saying we're not going to move to that state if this policy goes forward. Or we're going, right? You see it happening. Even if they're deliberately not coming out and saying we don't, in advance of saying we don't support this policy, we're saying we're not moving our office there, which can impact the state's budget. We're saying that we're not going to implement that particular policy for our employees, which goes directly against. So the companies can also do their own boycott. And I also think that they have relationships oftentimes with these political leaders. And so I do think there is a clear pathway for that to happen. I also think beyond policy, which shifts policy. So there's two forms of what I think are like transformative changes, cultural shifts, and then there's policy shifts. Policy shifts has the ability to impact culture and vice versa. And so if we get enough companies to do things differently, it only forces the government to adapt, right? Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that around technology. We're seeing that around the environment. Like companies are doing things differently and then policy has to follow in order to adapt around reporting mechanisms, holding those industries accountable. And so I do think it's oftentimes a chicken before the, the egg. And But I do think there are different tactics depending on the industry and depending on how big or large a corporation is or the policymaker, right? When we think about Joe Manchin, there's a lot of things we can say about him. <laughs> Don't get us started. Today. It's Monday. I'm going to refrain today. But if you go to my Twitter, I say a lot of things. He is mostly driven um, by his corporate donors. And so... Mm-hmm. If you're wondering how you can get an audience with a policymaker, it may not even be you getting an audience. It's the, the corporation that pads their pockets getting an audience. Totally. Yeah. Like, I think if the people, his donors told him to do things differently, we would be having a very different conversation. From oh, 100%. Month. We always talk about this yeah. too. I'm like, when the whole Build Back Better was everywhere in the news and like, nobody's really talking, like CNN's not saying, oh, like he's not he's not supporting this bill because here are his donors. That's it. Like, that's the answer. Like, it's yeah. really, but the, nobody really talks about that side of it. And it's and it's very short-sighted for me. And I say that because we're now seeing the repercussions of not having enough workers. So right now there is a worker shortage. And because of that, millennials like us are not having babies, right? Are not because we're one trying to pay back student loans, but also we're just like the state of the world looks tacky and ghetto as hell. (laughs) And what does that mean in 25 to 30 years when these companies are looking for a workforce that doesn't exist? So it's like, for me, these policies, these practices of companies are just very short-sighted because if you truly care about the brand, you would be doing things for the longevity. But the problem with that is that corporate corporate CEOs have a very short leadership time frame, so they don't care about twenty years out. They care about the time that they are in leadership because that impacts how much they receive in salary and their bonuses. And I think there needs to be a shift there. Totally, yeah. That is actually interesting to think about, like the shelf life of a CEO or even a CEO mm-hmm. of yeah, like that how that's really going to impact it because it's really like. Anything in that realm is sort of like a stepping stone to another company. I did XYZ amount of growth, and yep. therefore that ROI equals I now get to be on the board of a hundred million dollars in a salary. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it's I remember I worked for where one of the companies that uh, my firm used to represent was German and like their whole process for things is like very different. Like you are CEO for a certain amount of time, then you are re like elected essentially to that job position. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have that forever. And I think that even in transparency is like sort of an issue too, because again, you're trying to like make a name for yourself and you're always like kind of like fighting for that job as opposed to like, what are you fighting for in terms of like the company and its values and it's like long-term 
goals. So exactly. I think that totally just flipped to like how I thought about that around. So thank you for highlighting that. And that really gave me a lot to think about <laughs> no. today. But it's the same thing with policymakers too, right? right Their yeah. only thought is to get reelected. Right. They care about that for two or four years. And it's like, yeah, but we still got like, you know, thousands of years on this earth. <laughs> I hope. Yeah. Hopefully. Jesus. Yeah, I hope so. Um, not not sure. Nice. About, not sure, but I hope so. Well, to kind of wrap this conversation up, which has been amazing, can you a just kind of like also give people either as consumers or even you know this is a political podcast, like as voters, some tips and tricks as to like you know how to help combat this issue and push you know social impact forward, and then also please like plug all of all of your things, social media and everything, so that people can find you. Awesome. Well, what I will first say is that, especially for like young people who are listening, like there's no age requirement to change the world. We have tons of examples of young people from all over the world who have been at the forefront of change, and many of them have not even been able to vote or eligible to vote yet in their country. So, like, if you feel young and you don't feel like you have a ridiculous title or a large amount of money, that doesn't mean you can't make a change. The second thing I will say is, you know, it's not always necessary to recreate the will. You know, I think we're in an era where everyone feels like they need to be the CEO and founder of something. They need to create their own nonprofit, create their own company. That doesn't need to happen. I think one of the the things about being actively engaged is doing your research and power mapping, understanding Mm -hmm. what are the organizations in your community? Who are the authentic voices that are talking about these issues? What are the issues that your community members care about? And through that understanding, if there's a gap that you can fill or how can you help to support already existing programs and initiatives. And the third thing I will say is, I hate to say this, change is incremental, (laughs) not because we want it to be, but because the way society is set up. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I think it's really important if you're going to survive in this space of social activism, of social justice, is to create micro, micro goals and aspirations for yourself that are separate from policy changes that you want to make. Um, again, I've been doing this work since I was 15, and it's took the first 10 years, it wasn't sexy to talk about gun violence, right? The first 10 years, it wasn't sexy for young people to be in meetings with policymakers. And so, you know, that takes time. A lot of that change is happening much more rapidly. And so use the tools that you have to elevate the issues that you care about now. And you can follow me on all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Jamira Burley. I was on TikTok. I'm still there with a ghost account. But I'm not making any content. I respect that so much. I, my, yeah, we have our girl in the gub one. And then mine is a ghost cat with like two really (laughs) just random videos that I made with my friends. But yeah, just curating the algorithm every day, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Top stories of the week. Um, kicking off is that governors in four states are planning to end school mask mandates. So this is interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. this potential hopeful moment for maskless, COVIDless life, like, is somewhat coming back. But who knows? You know, California just lifted their mask mandate as well. Not for schools, though. Anyways, the four states announced plans Monday to lift statewide mask requirements in schools by the end of February or March, citing the rapid easing of COVID-19's Omicron surge. Omi! Omi! Oh, Oh, Omi. I remember when we first met you. The decisions in Connecticut, Delaware, New Jersey, and Oregon were announced as state and local governments grapple with which of these restrictions to 
you know, let go, which ones to keep. And the changes also come amid a growing sense that the virus is never going to go away and America's going to find a way to coexist with it. Like, amen to motherfucking that. And New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy called the move a huge step back to normalcy for our kids and said individual school districts will be free to continue requiring masks after the state mandate ends March 7th. And then, like I said, in California, we announced plans to end indoor masking requirement for vaccinated people next week, but masks will still be the rule for school, ch- school children in the nation's most populous state. That'll be interesting to see when California does, does yeah. lift that. I'm not totally sure. But I bet, like, you know, these four states are going to really be, like, a litmus test for the rest of the country, you know? Totally. And I feel like the California situation really happened because so many people at the playoffs were, like, like Eric Garcetti, who's, like, the mayor of L.A., like, a few of, like, those, like, big muckety mucks, like, all got in trouble for taking pictures without a mask on. And I feel like... At the football game? Yeah. Which I actually yeah, I watched, by the way. I watched Did you? Football. I don't really want to talk about it. Oh, oh, I forgot it was depressing for you guys. Yeah. I just was really mad about, like, the costumes they were wearing. Like, I was like, these colors clash, and I, like, really didn't appreciate it. The costumes. I've on the floor. Do they not look like (laughs) colonial people? Like, I'm sorry. They got little stockings on. The yellow and blue? I mean, all of them. Or just the football football uniform. I mean, uniform, Jesus Christ. It's like, (laughs) literally. I can't believe you're going. They're colonial women on the wing. Like, that is. We. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I love sports. Samantha's like the theater girl and I'm like the athlete. <laughs> it's just coming through so much right now. I can't. Oh my God. I can't. I literally die. But I also have like one other mass comment as you're like giving the deeds. It like made me think. So I'm like a little behind on the summer house because Peacock is like really like sucking some dicks right now. And they're like mm-hmm. behind on like posting the episodes. Don't even get me started. There was like an episode and they were like out like Southampton social or whatever. And like someone wasn't like the staff wasn't like wearing masks. And like it was one of those things like I forgot that there was a point this year or well, I guess last year where like we had gotten rid of masks in like like those settings. And then we brought them back and I'm like, oh, my God, this is like literal. It's whiplash. Like I feel like my mind is like, wait, what looks normal? What doesn't look normal? Like I can't quite place it. So I think this will be interesting to see you know, where yeah. it goes. But it's really been such a, this specifically, the mask in schools has been like, I think the most recent, like biggest political heated talking point. Totally. That and like obviously vaccine mandates for workers and then like masks in schools. Like I feel like those, that's like the two big remaining just like political arguments these days that like the right just can't get over. And I feel like the left just really doesn't give a shit anymore. Like, I think everyone's on the same page. Like, let's move on. Totally. But, like, some of these kind of more easy, like, requirements for people, like, masks are the easiest part of COVID, 100%. Totally. But just the people who, like, refuse to comply and then people who are like, okay, a mask is easy. Like, if that's what it takes for normalcy. God, of course I'll do it. Of course I'll do it. It's just so interesting. Like how Republicans are like, wow, I'm literally being oppressed for being forced to wear a mask. Like that's actually how their brain is working. I just, I can't handle it. And eight Republican led states, including Florida and Texas have bans on school mask mandates. So like there's states that actually are banning schools from 
mask wearing. It's and... also just like ignores like all the issues, especially with all the like book banning that's also going on right now. It's like there are mm. very distinct problems that schools are facing or just like the general population is facing like, I don't know, gun violence in schools and that yeah. larger conversation. And it's like, oh, like, what are we doing? We're banning books. It makes no sense to me. The hypocrisy is so real. But look, we always say this and I want to just like bring it back to this before we get into the next story is like, we always talk about how the Republicans are like better marketers than the, than the Democrats. And like, even like their outrage over things that are so hypocritical, like their ability to like amplify and make the most absolutely asinine arguments, like asinine uh, arguments and they make them work. It's yeah, crazy. crazy. Like they can literally tell people that the sky is purple and like their base will believe it. A thousand percent. They'll be like, Bible, thank you. I mean, literally look at you and on. They're like actually thinking that Obama's drinking baby blood, you know? It's just crazy. But damn, the marketers of the century, for sure. Truly. Well, I guess we got to go to Bama. We We got to go to Bama. So nonetheless, basically, the justices of the Supreme Court, SCOTUS, if you will, which really I need to stop like thinking of Anyways, I'm gonna not even say. Um, I know exactly what you're gonna say. Yeah, you know exactly. You're gonna make a scrotum joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I'll say it. Fine. <laughs> I have the maturity of a whoever final. was relating Scotus to scrotum or just getting them confused. We're right here with you. As we go back in back time. Back to Scrotus. <laughs> back in time and Scrotus. <laughs> Which might so, be the most appropriate now way Now we've just combined the two. It's not Scotus and it's not Scrotum. It's Scrotus. It's kind of how I feel about them right now. Let's get into they it. They really are in between things. So, you know, it feels right to mm. me. But anyways. <laughs> this is really starting to spiral. <laughs> the Supreme Court has blocked a lower court order that would have forced Alabama to draw a new congressional map with two districts likely to elect black House members. The high court's decision Monday, this past Monday, uh, is to leave the Republican-controlled state legislature's redistricting plan in place for the 2022 election elections. Sorry, guys. That was just a tongue twister. Anyways, this split the justices 5-4 with Chief Justice John Roberts showing the court's liberals in opposing the ruling. The congressional redistricting plan is likely to produce a 6-to-1 Republican advantage in the state delegation, the same as it is now. Not all members of the majority explain the rationale for stepping in to allow the state to implement its new map, but Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Samuel Alito signaled that they believed an order from a panel of three federal judges which required redrawing the state's congressional districts would cause too much disruption with the primary election set for May 24th and absentee balloting in those races set to open on March 30th. That line of reasoning suggests that for this election, the Supreme Court may be unlikely to greenlight changes to other state congressional maps sought in the Voting Rights Act lawsuits in the coming months. According to what Kavanaugh wrote, he said, filing deadlines need to be met, but candidates cannot be sure what district they need to file for. Indeed, at this point, some potential candidates do not even know which district they live in, nor do incumbents know if they now might be running against other incumbents in the upcoming primaries. When an election is close at hand, the rules of the road must be cleared and settled. Roberts said that the three-judge panel that found Alabama's map in violation of the Voting Rights Act seemed to have correctly applied existing precedent. You have let the panel's ruling stand through the election this year. He said in dissent, mm. in my view, the district court properly applied existing law and extensive opinion with no apparent errors for our correction. Interesting. So, 
this is a lot to digest, but I honestly just feel like I'm not in shock because like knowing like how the court is balanced right now, like I can't say like I'm shocked as to like what happened, but I just feel like incredible levels of disappointment. It's just, yeah. it's just bloody messed up. It's that's and Scrotus just like really is at the nose so much right now. They have, they're just everywhere, and I feel like they're never this busy. We never hear from them this much. I don't. They're and like literally like, on the line at all times. So I'm like, excuse me, like I'm putting you on hold. No, totally. And I'm, I feel like I'm used to like when Trump, you know, appointed Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. I was like, okay, yeah, this sucks. But at the same time, like, I just feel like Scrotus isn't around or in the picture that much. Like, it doesn't, like, things don't always make it to Scrotus, you know? Totally. So I'm like, okay, like, we might be okay. But, like, I just feel like everything is at, on the desk of Scrotus right now. Speaking of Republicans, like, we talked about how they're great marketers. Like, yeah, this is just making me also think that and realize, like, Republicans are also way better just, like, fighters, you oh, know? Totally. Like, when, when they're losing or when, you know, things aren't in their favor, a.k.a., you know, no control of the House, the Senate, or the presidency right now, like, you know, they find other creative, like, crafty ways to, like, fight back and, like, get their agenda totally pushed forward. And Democrats do not do that. I feel like. No, they don't. And I really don't understand, like, why. Yeah, Democrats are just, are speaking of scrotums. They're weak, like scrotums. They just are. It's really, and it's they upsetting because they're it's sensitive and they're and they're weak. <laughs> and we're Democrats, and we're saying that it just it needs. There's a lot that needs to change on clearly like how strategy is mm-hmm. created and gone after because like for all the shit with the Republicans, maybe very much like disagree on a you know policy level. Their strategy fucking works. Like I mean, we wouldn't be in this situation it if it didn't. So they're the minority always. Like even out. There are way more Democrats and progressive-minded people in this country than there are conservatives and Republicans, but, like, Republicans still manage to get their Ws, you know? And that's all we're saying. So, yeah. Anyways, let's just, we'll move on to this next story because the White House is considering expanding limits on no-knock warrants, which is just, I think, extremely long overdue. And just a touch, because the Biden administration is considering expanding a policy that limits the use of no-knock warrants by certain federal agents. And a no-knock warrant, as its name applies, is an order from a judge that allows law enforcement officials with a search warrant to enter a home without announcing their presence first. And it's an exemption to a, to usual practice. In most cases, the law requires that officers must knock and announce themselves before entering a private home to execute a warrant. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Monday that President Joe Biden was looking at whether to further limit federal agents' use of, ta- of the tactic after a local SWAT team in Minneapolis fatally shot Amir Locke, a 22-year-old black man, this weekend, right? While he was sleeping. While he was sleeping. So it's basically a Breonna Taylor part two. So extremely devastating. And this is just, like we said, extremely long overdue. The Justice Department announced in September that it was curtailing the use of no-knock warrants by its federal agents. However, Biden is now weighing expansion to other federal agencies. Agents and officers in Homeland Security, for example, also use the tactic. The updated Justice Department policy is more limiting than what is permitted by law, requiring approval from both federal prosecutors and 
supervisory law enforcement agent to obtain a no-knock warrant. Under the updated policy, Justice Department agents, including those in the FBI, the DEA, U.S. Marshal Service and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, and Explosives, that's a mouthful, limited to using a no-knock warrant only in situations when an agent has, quote-unquote, reasonable grounds to believe that knocking and announcing the agent's presence would create imminent threat of physical violence to the agent and or other person. There are limited exceptions to that rule, but agents seeking a warrant in those circumstances need approval from the agency's director and the U.S. attorney or assistant attorney general before seeking the warrant from a judge. No-knock warrants are mostly used in local policing where federal executive orders would not apply. The tactic is highly dangerous for residents who don't know who is coming through the door. To kind of circle back on the Brianna Taylor case we were talking about, she was killed by police during a no-knock raid on her home in Louisville, and the warrants have been disproportionately used against black and brown people. They can also be dangerous for law enforcement officers. For in the latest example, police body cam footage shows an officer kicking the couch where Locke's family said the 22-year-old was sleeping. On the video, Locke is seen wrapped in a blanket but getting moved with a pistol in his hand just before the officer fires his weapon. Locke's parents, Andre Locke and Karen Wells, say their son was executed after he was stirred up from a deep sleep and reached for a legal firearm to protect himself. The family and activists have called for the firing of the interim police chief. The Biden administration came out saying that they're mourning the tragic death of Amir Locke and said the White House has been talking to civil rights groups as well as law enforcement agencies about the need to reform the policies. There's a lot of agreement on that to keep both citizens and law officers safe, she said. Oh, I mean, I don't have many words. It's really frustrating that this shit happens, period. It's that also, happens so often. It's, it's just... It's also really like the classic situation of like history repeating itself. It's like how many times do you have to repeat the same mistake? Yeah. Like maybe this pattern is telling us something that we're or doing it's like, something let's wrong. Let's rethink. And also, like you said, like the point where it's, this is also so dangerous for police officers too to just enter somebody's home and right. just like oh. there has to be better ways to do this. But yeah, it's pretty shocking and super devastating that again this happened again this weekend. So definitely, I think this is a good call to action. Everyone should like reach out to their reps. You can even reach out to the Biden administration and put pressure on on them to just, like make these reforms. It's like literally yesterday was the time, not even Legit. years ago was the time. <laughs> yeah, long, but, long overdue. But yeah. since we are still in this position, like Maddie said, it's definitely time for action, calling your reps writing to your reps, DMing your reps, throwing it on a mm -hmm. story, tweeting your reps. Like, yeah. honestly. And don't stop, like, talking about this shit when it happens. I think, like, it's still happening, and I just think because it's not 2020 and we're not in the time of, you know, Black Lives Matter when all of that shit was going down, people haven't been talking about it as much, aren't, like, reposting it. Like, do more of that. Like, we need to spread the awareness and keep all of that going because... I'm sure there's a lot of people who, like, don't even know that this happened, awesome which is not okay. So keep spreading um, these stories and making people, making sure, like, the people around you are aware because we can't, we can't sleep on, on this issue of police reform. But those are our top stories. And that is our episode. Make sure you go get your delicious wines and that is in the link in our episode description samantha you look like you're biting your tongue what's up i'm trying to sweep up over here oh we got housekeeping we got housekeeping so for housekeeping numero dos um following you guys ordering some lovely wine 
because we have an event in New York on March 12th. This is actually going to be a live show. So if you guys want to meet us, if you want to see us in action, this is a great moment to do that. Tickets are going to be obviously link in bio, link in description, all of that. We're going to be having two phenomenal political experts that are going to be walking us through all things midterm elections, talking about like what to expect, like how to get involved, like what are all the pain points, what are the like things that we need to look out for. And we're asking me doing it at Y7, which is like literally my favorite yoga spots, hot yoga. It's so cool. Like they're just like, I don't know, they're the best. And I just can't say better words about them. And it's gonna be really freaking fun. So if you're in New York, March 12th, 3 to 4.30, come hang out. Come do some hot yoga, learn about the midterm elections, what you need to do and all that jazz, and we'll see you there. Yeah. Um, summer internships, if you are in college, need college credit, hit them up. If not, join our brand ambassador program. We want to meet you. We want to bring you into our community of like-minded ladies and whoever. But there's resume boosters. There's networking opportunities. So... Sign up. You can go to girlonthegov.com and read up more on it and sign up there as well. And then again, internship is girlonthegov.com slash careers. Uh, tickets are at girlonthegov slash events. So you guys, it's all it's all there. Go to our website and we will be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.